Okay, um, I get started. Um, that's like not a very dramatic uh, opening. But <laughs> uh, thank you for being here. Uh, this is a show do tell, uh, the reading series where we get to get to know readers a little bit. Uh, after they read, I try to ask uh, some kind of an interesting question, kind of get uh, into the, either their process or other interesting things uh, related to them. Uh, in addition to their work. I usually like to start with uh, a little reading myself. And today, the sun came out, which is really nice. Uh, it was started as another horrible gray day. But this is a spring-related poem uh, by a poet who spent some time in Queens in the 1830s, uh, Walt Whitman. Uh, this is called uh, When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed. And uh, I'm reading a little excerpt from it. Uh, and then uh, Rebecca will come up for her reading. Five. Over the breast of the spring, the land, amid cities, amid lanes and through old woods, where lately the violets peeped from the ground, spotting the gray debris amid the grass in the fields, each side of the lanes, passing the endless grass, Passing the yellow sphere wheat, every grain from its shroud in the dark brown fields uprisen. Passing the apple tree blows of white and pink in the orchards, carrying a corpse to where it shall rest in the grave. Night and day journeys a coffin. Coffin that passes through lanes and streets, through day and night with the great cloud darkening the land, with the pomp of the in-loop flags, with the cities draped in black, with the show of the states themselves, as of crepe veiled women standing, with the processions long and winding, and the flambeaux of the night, with the countless torches lit, with the silent sea of faces and the unbared heads, with the waiting depot, the arriving coffin, and the somber faces, with dirges through the night, with the thousand voices rising strong and solemn, with all the mournful voices of the dirges poured around the coffin, the dim-lit churches and the shuddering organs, where amid these you journey, with the tolling, tolling bells' perpetual clang, here, coffin that slowly passes, I give you my sprig of lilac. Seven, nor for you, for one alone, blossoms and branches, green to coffins, all I bring. For fresh as the morning, Thus would I chant a song for you, O sane and sacred death. All over bouquets of roses, O death, I cover you over with roses and early lilies. But mostly and now the lilac that blooms the first. Copious I break, I break the sprigs from the bushes. With loaded arms I come, pouring for you, for you, and the coffins, all of you, O death. Eight. O western orb sailing the heaven, now I know what you must have meant as a month since I walked, as I walked in silence, the transparent shadowy night, as I saw you had something to tell, as you bent me, bent to me night after night, as you drooped from the sky, low down as if to my side, while all the other stars all looked on, as we wandered together the solemn night for something I know not what kept me from sleep, as the night advanced and I saw you on the rim of the west, how full you were of woe, as I stood on the rising ground in the breeze in the cool transparent night as I watched where you pass and was lost in the nether ward black of the night as my soul in its trouble is 
satisfied, sank as where you sat or concluded, dropped in the night, and was gone. Uh, that's that. Walt Whitman. That was supposed to be about spring, but... It's kind of fucked up. All right, so <laughs> Rebecca Bergman's fiction appears or is forthcoming in Joyland, Hobart, Diagram, Cosmonauts Avenue, and Passages North, among other journals. She was a 2018 Tennessee Williams Scholar at the Salony Writers Conference and a 2018 winner of the Master's Review Anthology Prize. She lives in Brooklyn and is at work on a novel. Uh, check out her website, RebeccaBirdman.com. Come, come on up. Gentlemen, Mr. B would say. 
reminding them of what they were not yet, but were meant to become. At the root of this epidemic was a flowering plant that grew nowhere else on the planet. Since ancient times, different painkillers had been derived from it. People had robbed a topical notion made from its nectar, chewed its stalks, swallowed its seeds. It had already shaped the country's history several times over, since addiction is good for business, and since business is good for war. In this iteration, the drug was intravenous. It was injected with a syringe into the crook of an elbow, or, when that region was decimated, the underside of a tongue, the thin skin between toes, piercing veins wherever veins still surfaced. It brought about a sense of euphoria and painlessness, along with possible breathing problems, coma, aggressive infection at the injection site that could spread to the spine, it was said, in less than one hour's time. The risks mattered less and less as the habit clawed its way deep into brains and hearts so that this became the fight of the suffering addicts. When they used it more, it brought them less pleasure, but when they used it less, it gave them more pain. That day, in the waning sunlight of the transformed lot, the officer had pushed Mr. B with a pad of a fingertip, afraid, perhaps, to make too much contact and catch what was spreading. And with that tiny touch on his concave chest, Mr. B was made to move backward, one step and another, and then a third, which folded him into the back seat of the officer's vehicle. And all the while, the boy said nothing. He kept watching, unblinking. First through the streaky windshield of the van he was hiding inside, and then also through the streaky window of the officer's car. And the effect of that, window on window, glass over glass, made the boy feel as if he were looking for a strange camera, one with a lens that worked, like the small end of a pair of binoculars. It made things look, as they were happening, like they were already moving backward and fading away. I'm skipping ahead a little bit. The redesign. When the great epidemic ended, which was still years before Monique Gray's birth, a new regime rose and gave the country an official name with the word republic. They ousted the inept and violent ruling class with a promise of recovery, restitution, healing. They said they would bury the painful period in anything that might evoke its memory. A massive redesign was started, creating hordes of jobs and re-energizing the population with a forgotten feeling made new again, hope. Things that used to shine were given a matte finish, with shades like eggshell, unbleached linen, burlap. The aim was for the next generation to know nothing of the sharpness of needles, and for those who had known such things, to find no reminder and no temptation to know them again. It was extensive. The aesthetic fled into every industry, every nook of public and then private life. Glittering became outdated, garish. New paint on a car no longer made a car wink in the sunlight. All points were filed to bluntness. All corners made round. Within a short time, even paper thickened, a new material having been synthesized that was heftier. Books were made with clean-colored pages that clacked pleasingly against one another when turned. The background sound filled libraries and made one think of early humans who wrote, it was said, onto stones. In that children's game, too, the rock, paper, and scissors disappeared, each replaced with a more modern implement, since rock had become too similar to paper and since scissors were, if not contraband, then obsolete. 
Soon, people forgot what paper cut spelled it. Soon after, the original meaning of the word paper cut was lost also. The word became the kind of curse one would whisper below one's breath after any unforeseen and preventable accident. Paper cut, one would say, after, for instance, stubbing the toe. The boy, who was now a young man and would soon be a father, did think of his teacher. He remembered the many lessons Mr. B had taught him, the various types of logical fallacy, how reptiles differ from amphibians, the parts of the human brain and what each part is responsible for, language, memory, pleasure, pain. Once Mr. B had sat on his desk and told an old tale set in a faraway land at an unknown past time. A princess was cursed to prick her finger on a spindle and slip into a 100-year sleep. The king and queen issued an order. All spindles in the kingdom had to be burned. What happened next? He no longer remembered. He could not recall what Mr. B looked like, but he felt like he could because he did remember small, innocuous things that had belonged to the man. There was a tie with a busy pattern of books on it, a birthmark on a forehead shaped like an island, the word gentleman said aloud like a spell. I'm skipping forward one last time. Um, and this is the, his daughter, the performance artist, in a fan club discussing her. We are fascinated with Monique Gray. We talk of her latest work at dinner parties, and we pretend to understand her art more than we do. We pretend to understand her, the artist, from her art also. What she is doing, we say, breaks new ground. We agree with one another about this. When it comes to art, we tend to agree with most people about most things. The performance artist is from a faraway land that we think of as a storybook kingdom. We know little about what happened there. The country had one name, then there was war. It was maybe a civil war, or maybe not. Now it has another name. We confuse which name is old and which is new. None of us is certain enough to correct anyone else about the name question. People died and their, their bodies lay unburied for three seasons. We saw photos of that, but we do not know why it happened that way exactly. The performance artist has no living relatives. This is all we know, but we would like to know more. We keep expecting, in fact, to know more. We are not ourselves artists. We like to think of ourselves as art appreciators. We typically have one large canvas, which we purchased at auction, hanging in our dining rooms. We have careers that require staring at things for many hours until we believe we have made sense of them. The things we stare at vary from person to person. Some of us stare at rows and columns of data that represent enormous swaths of human behavior, whole lives broken into quantifiable chunks. Others stare at x-ray images, discrete inner pieces of strangers. Here, a jaw. There, phalanges. Here, a kidney. Something is wrong with everything and in need of detecting. A fracture, thin as a hair. A stone as small as a sand grain. Still, others have other things to look at. The puzzling syntax of legal contracts, routing numbers, ones and zeros and zeros and ones, the fluctuating values of abstract shares that go back and forth as they are bought and sold, bought and sold. Why are they called shares, you're fond of teasing? There are buyers and sellers, but nobody's sharing them, not really. And yet, we think to ourselves in the silence that follows the badge of, why is anything called anything in one's line of work? 
This thought induces some panic. The floating ribs do not actually float in the body, one day in the torso, the next in the leg, nor do the cells of a spreadsheet accumulate to form living tissue, which would form organs, forming organ systems, organisms, population of species, flora and fauna, our world. Back to the performance artist. We've seen Monique Gray bleed all over the stage. We've seen her naked. We've seen her shit. Not actively shit, but we saw shit that she already shot. She had it fossilized and asked the audience to pass it around with their bare hands. Did you touch it? We asked one another. We say that we did, whether or not we did. Most of us, in truth, did not. The more naive in our group will confess to finding performance art rather, rather confounding. Really, the others say? I suppose I could see that. And we nod at one another like chicks. Someone pretentious quotes something pretentious and moves to the center of the gathering. It may not be a question of what is performance art, a pause for drama, but instead, what couldn't be? This is a line we read in a review about the performance artist in the art section of the Sunday edition of a big paper we usually skim. We do not remember what side the reviewer came down on. Was it a rave or a pan? But we did think, each of us thought when we read it, that the line about performance art might come in handy at a dinner party one day. A sense of deflation passes around. We have lost this opportunity now. In general, we like how Monique Gray diverts us from the things we need to divert ourselves from. When we stop staring at the ones and zeros, the legal contracts, when we stare instead at our own reflections and see each time someone older than we are used to seeing there, for just when we might have gotten used to it, we have grown older yet again. Here instead is the artist, a woman who lived through things we couldn't even imagine living through. In Final Resting Place, she filled a gallery with 54 coffins, all kinds of coffins, fairy tale glass ones, handcrafted wood ones, those state-of-the-art ones that are plush pink velvet inside and look a little like moons. We did not think of our own slow and inevitable deaths during that performance. We thought instead of all the violent deaths she had witnessed. We say this often. I can't even imagine it. Meaning, of course, her life. We say this, but still, she never describes it. And so we keep trying to imagine it when we watch her art. We do this again and again, trying and failing. It is a relief each time, because each time we are convinced anew that we are right. No, we cannot. Yeah, I found that really fascinating to read. Um, and I, I, uh, I was in a workshop with Rebecca at the New School, and uh, her writing, I, found, I felt like it had that zoomed out quality, with, but the visceral detail is so strong. So you actually feel like you're seeing the culture or situation she's describing more clearly because she's zoomed out from it, which is really, really interesting. And. Um, I feel like that kind of writing can complement writing about a dystopia, alternate reality, or a whole different world, but how would you describe what you're doing, and uh, what brought you to the subject matter and writing style for a novel? Sure. Um, yes, yeah, so for a long time I only wrote really, really short stories, like microfiction, and then at the new school I was writing longer stories, but still stories. Um, and the way I've kind of tricked myself into writing a novel is to write it as a novel in stories. Um, and so each chapter is kind of a standalone story, but there is an arc that goes through, and I think the zooming out and zooming in is helping me 
to achieve that. And I think there are sort of two places I think that that zoomed out, zoomed in thing is coming from. Um, one is that I think this piece shows it. I'm trying, I'm hoping to try to attach the, the story that I'm focused on to like a much broader, bigger story. So in this case, the history of this country is not real, but I'm trying to sort of hang it on to the histories that are real from lots of different places, including living history and you know, dates today. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing that I think is very obvious in this piece is just the influence of fairy tales, which even when I was writing those sort of short stories, I think they were very fairy tale-esque. Um, and it's really common in a fairy tale to have a lot of narrative distance between the subject matter and the reader. Um, so, yeah, in this case, this performance artist, who I think, I would say she's one of the main characters in the story, she never actually appears. You only see her through the eyes of here her fan club, but also critics, um, her sisters, the story of her father, which is before she's even born. Um, and the, the story of Sleeping Beauty is kind of tying through all of these stories within the novel. So here is like the, the decree that sharp objects are to be eliminated. Um, as you see in like, the history of the country and in other stories that comes back a little bit. So everybody uh, buy Rebecca's book when it comes out because it sounds like it's going to be terrific and thank you for being here and uh, great, great job. Alright, we're rolling. Coming down on the right page. Uh, Gabrielle Don is a multidisciplinary artist who works in a variety of mediums, a filmmaker, artist, photographer, musician, and writer. She has been published in numerous online and print publications. She received her MFA in creative writing at the New School, where she worked as the reading series and chapbook competition coordinator, and currently teaches writing at BMCC. Her short stories are forthcoming in publications such as Gargoyle 70, and her poetry collection, Living Without Skin, was just released with the Gathering of the Tribes, Fly By Night Press. Congratulations for that. Born in uh, Australia, raised in Singapore and Dubai, Don now resides in New York City. Rebecca, um, I just found out this morning that my friend, who was a performance artist, um, passed away. So synchronicity is magic. So it's very special um, to hear your piece. I usually decide what I'm going to read before I come, because I've never had my own work cover to cover. Now I have to figure out what I'm going to read. <laughs> I have copies with me, by the way, if anyone wants to buy them. Start at the beginning. So the first poem in Living Without Skin is called Towards You Lord, the Erotic Has Power. He was a milksop, ineffectual boy in big shoes, and I like big, big men, gorillas, and I like to feel small. Belief systems don't always align with reality. I am mercurial, subject to change of mood or mind, fleeting like a fairy. But you cannot capture me. My light cannot be kept in a jar. I am fleeting and free. An empowered woman is dangerous, but can one be powerful and neat? I need someone to take care of me, and I need to start taking care of me. I don't mean money. I mean I want him to tend to domesticity, do my dishes and feed me. I work so hard, my mind on many matters, I forget to eat. I need him to sustain me in the kitchen and always make me come. 
know what makes you unhappy, and eliminate them one by one. She liked her work, and it worked her like she worked herself. With each touch on her clit, she was energized and powerful. Chill like a lizard. Why can't you chill like a lizard sitting near me on a stone that skittered around the path I walked until it realized we both meant no harm? I sat down on the stairs and the lizard and I chilled in the hot sun, looking at the view while a hummingbird and butterfly buzzed and fluttered. The lizard didn't come at me like your aggressive words and energy. Why can't you chill like a lizard? Untitled Poem 6. You stole so, so many, many things from me, but I stole your heart. That's the biggest thing to take. I didn't mean to, though, and here I am giving it back. Take it, please. You can keep what you took from me. Just don't come back. We can change our lives. Um, this begins with the epigraph of the date, October 2012, New York City. And then your New Yorkers, that's the month Sandy hit. Um, I wrote this poem in a dog bar in Williamsburg when after a week of no electricity, I finally thought, okay, I'll walk across to my friend's house, across the bridge and have a hot shower. <laughs> we can change our lives. Cannot there is no place for, oh, sorry, before I begin, um, this poem was written um, using every single word in Rilke's um, archaic torso of Apollo. So the first word of every single line is a, um, from his poem, Rilke's poem. Sorry for that interruption. We can change our lives. October 2012, New York City. Cannot there is no place for, know in all its power, his otherwise curved nature, legendary burst beyond borders, head to head with you, eyes beneath eyes like defaced me, ripening stone fruit. And that dark center, yet that melancholic consumption, his lungs cough heaving torso flared, is a sticky matter still sodden suffused with forgetting myself and all my brilliance. From which a lioness, a wild beast stretches inside. The dog you woke up next to like darkness, an unexpected visitor with no lamp. My software is open source. In this room, I relish in feeling, which is feeling, his would not gaze, his could not now, turn would not glisten, to majestic me, never low, never missing gleams and glances in naive adoration, all of you bask in its power. Otherwise, water that remains water, the wine that was always wine, curved continents where hairy beasts brew, could love, could love not, dazzle, razzle you, so it could have been otherwise, nor it could have been otherwise. Could wells fill people, a glance is a bucket, smile a fountain, run from the enjoyment of running through cemented forests, the sound of feet in your direction, placid patters, hips like a pendulum, and not thighs scratching in haste past thighs to get distance from A, that before, that was, dark beginning with no safe center, a circle is a line where two points have met perpetual procreation flared. Otherwise, all is good. This is safe. Safe as stone. Stone with thoughts. What is, are, or going to be. 
seems so soft it could be defaced, but it has something to tell you. Beneath love, love that is a love that when the temperature is perfect, you don't sweat or frostbite. Translucent traces cascade your fingertips of a pointed finger that can't help but be aggressive. The I don't want to hear the words, thought shoulders, locks built on my inner vision, and I knew me best, but would recommend the gradual formation of thoughts while speaking, not a silent encasement. Words work and glisten, like fairy dust and cluster bombs, not a benign beneath. Wild, wild beast grunts. Finger furrowing for lice and fur. You would think of me, wouldn't you? Would you not? I don't comprehend the borders of myself from the pictures you took of me thinking about you. All the time I don't believe in the wood-seen borders of arbitrary, of skin and nations itself. Burst but not bubbles, like a blanket cozy, a sovereign star for revolutionaries here and there. Hopefully there is only peace, no pillaging a place that a safety circle does not surround. Not where you and I slept separately. Seesaw self and you. You. There are many yous, and yous must have many me's. Change your hat, and your head could remain. Such is life. Apricots Will Fall from the Sky. This was previously published in um, the Unbearables anthology called um, The End of the American Dream. And Apricots Will Fall from the Sky is an expression in the Middle East um, similar to what we say here where you say pigs will fly. Say apricots will fall from the sky. Honey on cantaloupe, an unintentional pregnancy. A young woman who feels like a bad person, a no-nonsense midwife with butterflies on her white cotton shirt, not a doctor in a hospital with white bleached walls. A husband lying next to his wife in bed, both writing, after garden duty where they kept a community garden open, watered their plots and other plants. An Iraq veteran who says he won't go back because he won't kill other innocent people, poor people like himself who are not a threat to him or his nation. A frustrated daughter whose father won't bury the dead bird with her children. The cheer of women talking loudly up to too many joints at lunch. Young girls in white tutus dancing around a cross. The boxer who hugs his mother, needing a shoulder. I just want to talk to my mom. The American privilege to hit people for entertainment, money, and sport, and fun. A hobby. The Williamsburg Bridge. A woman hiding the fact she's eating meat again from her boyfriend. A daughter grieving her mother's suicide among her boxes of poetry writing archival, walking the streets of Manhattan with Derrida. Talking to lawyers holding boxes of evidence. The relief of hearing a baby cry, they are alive, they are breathing. People shopping, shopping, boxes delivered to door of things produced in China, polluting their air till they can't breathe safely. Me, asleep safely in my New York apartment, with the ground beneath me holding me up and the air letting me breathe without fear. And every time we hear a plane, we do not feel scared. We are in America. The climate of the day, thermometer of our society, spirit of the times, anxious. Everybody thinks they gotta buy something, buy something and be better. A lot of young adults feel the world is coming to an end. 
climate change, environmental destruction, politics, nuclear missiles. It is an overwhelming time to exist. Not only do these beliefs and worries exist, but these beliefs and worries are telecast on the TV, on the news, on the internet, on our phones, on our devices. We are bombarded with information, anxious, fear-filling information. The oceans will rise, the ice caps will melt, the world will overheat, bombs and drones. Mass consumption of goods that destroy the air we breathe and our self-esteem. I need something to be whole. Constant contact, constant communication rather than stillness with the wind. Phone messages, social media, and emails, emails, emails. Plastic bags filling the water. Killing cows and chickens, animals for food and overbreeding, overpopulating the planet with the preferred meat for the human palate. Chopped up strawberries, punnets and punnets of unspoiled bright red put in Tupperware to freeze. Vibrating at the limitless universe after watching a movie that awakens what was dead, what was tired, better than a coffee. The book you can settle into like a comfy sofa. The lessons you teach that you can't learn. The people you start losing to the inevitable foibles of life, the enduring love of grandparents. Facebook feed feeds the ego, feeds the wolf that shouldn't be fed, fear, darkness, and cruelty. Students fall asleep in classroom. A man driving his girlfriend to visit his grandma threatens to crash the car. People push through supermarkets. A lady has an anxiety attack over her laundry. Cigars drift up in your window, secondhand smoke. The tree outside the window glows in the wind, leaves leaning back and forth, things that can only be seen in the way they affect their surroundings. The cheapness of a fake wooden bed that costs more than it is worth, the shop that went out of business. The churning white noise of the radiator, the generator, some machine invading ears like mosquitoes. The indifference that is more dangerous than give a fuck. The horrific emptiness. Emptiness that doesn't even hurt, but concerning and lack of hurt and concern. Hearing Muslim women and children attacked. Anger that blooms into fear of ignorance, fear of the world one inhabits. This is America. This is imperialism. This is hurting people. Tourists swarm diners on a Saturday. People not sitting here with all the time in the world, but in a moment of convenience between here and there. Waiters rush, wanting everyone in and out. More coffee? Chinatown hot chicken buns, pineapple buns, custard buns, coconut buns for $1. Free music in Washington Square Park. A man practicing martial arts with his headphones in, kicking lamp poles, next to hype men drawing the stage with chalk, who never appear to actually begin the show, in a constant countdown to action. New Yorkers who do not have the right to air or view, do not have the right to natural light. Young kids who buy apartments without lights. Millionaires and people who just came out of Ivy League schools or good schools and who come straight out of college and have loans up to here. So they buy these apartments because it's a very prestigious address. 106 Central Park South, Trump Park. Two large marble lobbies with white club doormen. Tapestry inside. Who don't have light in their home because their apartment has a wall next to it. Your apartment window is right next to the wall of the next building. You can actually touch the wall of the next building. That wall of the other building prevents any light coming through. Apartments are so dark, pitch dark, you cannot see anything. 
a young wealthy investment banker working for J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs who works 80 to 100 hours a week, wakes up at 6.15 in the morning when it is still dark, takes a shower and goes to work before the sun rises, and comes home late at night, and doesn't notice the lack of light, and once a month if they have the day off, they go to the park and lay down in the grass. You can throw a stone and hit a poet, a philosopher, an artist, an activist, a person who fears, if Trump wins, we will all be mute. So they volunteer and create, hoping that their flowers trump destruction. High-rise buildings encroach the Lower East Side. People no longer riot in Tompkins Square Park, the end of the tented city. People pay junkies to take pipes from buildings and look the other way, tactics to get people out of their rent-stabilized homes. Fire, buildings burning, drug dealers, the mentally ill moved in, making your building a halfway house, a knock on the door that scares your son in the morning, gunshots, businesses unable to hold down a corner, landlord keeps changing, landlord keeps changing tenants. Now your next door neighbor pays at least twice what you do and probably and doesn't have a bathtub, but he has a washer and dryer and probably attends NYU. The weekends are now noticeable in your building, people in finance and other job jobs go out on Fridays. Buyouts, construction, erroneous billing, incorrect charges. Corporations who send a debt collector off to you incorrectly, but you can't send a debt collector off to them. The mosaics and street art are taken down just to be put up again. People protest at Wall Street, occupying the park, still have their money in banks. Gas leaks and gas explodes. Real estate doesn't care. Rome got sacked in 410. All empires come to an end. The wind and the rain and the storm cut off electricity, and everyone was kind to each other. is a wonderful word. I discovered it. it means an unhealthy attachment to an object, idea, or person, which I definitely experienced in all forms. <laughs> Cathexis. I mourn for my mother like Demeter created seasons with grief. A daughter makes Hades fill the role. He will never be as gentle, though just as harsh, a lullaby in a lap. Relationships have stages. Spring will come again. Autumn mellows fiery summer sun when heat gets too much to bear. I watch the scar on my leg disappear and hope my heart heals too. I remind myself to listen to my insides, which know what's right, what's safe, an instinct that when ignored bites bitter like a scorpion of unlistened to advice. You will never understand all I understand of you. A husband who died in the underworld, I know him too. The idea becomes a map. I try to follow and I try not to follow. Every line of stitches I knit, I unravel. When did skin to skin become so dangerous? A bed without fresh sheets and space between us, too many blankets but not enough love, too many memories better off forgotten but etched on our organs, the hidden iceberg of all the words we use like weapons. A phoenix must burn before she rises. Thank you. Thank you. Um, in your 
poetry, I, I sense, uh, or I read, uh, like assertiveness. Um, Sorry? Assertiveness. Oh. A sense of asserting your body, skin, that's in the glass foam. And uh, the word empowerment comes to mind. Um, I'm wondering, like, when you sit down to write, is that something you're consciously aware of uh, or consciously trying to get to a place where you're kind of inserting yourself in a pretty chaotic world and in this tough city you live in with the rise of rents, everything you address, including a lot of other things. Um, so yeah, that was, that was what I was curious about. Like how we- weaponizing writing, of course not as a weapon, weapon but you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, I'm a woman, so I think anytime we have a thought and we want to share it, um, even in this age where people think we're progressed a lot, um, if we demand any time or space, no matter how um, polite it may be, just, you know, we're, you know, we're called bossy, demanding, um, you know, that um, women are called bossy at work, and it's like, yes, I am your boss, that is my job, is to tell you what to do. So I think anytime a woman speaks, there is a sense of being assertive. Uh, well, Thank you. Thank you, Matt. And uh, we'll take about a five-minute uh, five-minute respite. We'll finish with uh, Lori Stone. It's great turnout. Uh, thanks so much for coming, everybody. It's much appreciated. And uh, we'll, we'll finish with Lori Stone uh, by about five minutes or so, five, six minutes.
Corey Stone is the author most recently of My Life as an Animal Stories, and I recommend that to anybody. It's an amazing read. Uh, and she has copies. Yes. Great cover, too. Really cool cover. She was a longtime writer for The Village Voice, theater critic for The Nation, and critic at large on Fresh Air. She won the Nona Blocking Prize in Excellence in Criticism from the National Books Critics Circle and two grants from the New York Foundation for the Arts. She has published numerous stories in such publications as N1, Tin House, Evergreen Review, Fence, Open City, Anderbo, and The Collages. Your Impossible Voice, New Letters, Tri-Quarterly, Three Penny Review, and Creative Nonfiction. In 2005, she participated in novel and installation, writing a book and living in a house designed by architect Salazar Davis in the Flux Factory's gallery space. She is at work on postcards from the thing that is ha happening, a collage of hybrid narratives. Her website is gloriestonewriter.com. Come on. Nature, and perhaps you'll see some resonance in what I'm doing. I can't see quite well. Ah. A tumor was removed from my sister's lung. When she could speak, she said, I'm still here. Her voice was croaky from the breathing tube. Before the surgery, I said, you can't leave me alone with mom. She said, Mom is dead. Her ashes are in my closet. I'm sitting beside a fountain off Broadway. The sound of rushing water softens the heat, and the smell of butter floats up from the bakery. My sister has been dead for two months. One day, she could not sit up, although she had been able to sit up the day before. Two sparrows are splashing in the fountain the way we used to dart into the lawn sprinklers. I wish you were here. Last night, Chris Krauss read from her book After Kathy Acker, and I thought about how writers create an idiom whose oddness teaches you how to read oddness. That is always the way with something we have never seen before, and at the same time feels familiar. Beside me on the bench is a man with a small dog. The dog has the extreme underbite of a deep-water fish and a luxuriant coat of Rita Hayworth fur. Dog and man were beside me the day before, yesterday and the day before. I found the eyeglasses of the man I live with in a flower pot in the garage 
when they went to repot a bromeliad. The glasses cost a thousand dollars and had been missing for eight months. One day, when my sister was having chemo, she asked me what I thought her parents had given us. I said, freedom and no brother. My mother used a manual cash register at the health food store where she worked. When it gave out, my brother-in-law replaced it with an electronic one. My mother said, I will never learn to use it. My brother-in-law took her into a back room and taught her what she needed to know. She was 58 and had never worked before. For nine years, my brother-in-law owned the health food store for the happiest of my mother's life. People would ask for her when they came in. She was nicer than she really was. We are all nicer when we hear our name called out. The emotional power of sexual politics derives from Kate Millett's love for the male writers she dismantles in her book. It's possible to learn Danish by watching the TV show Borgen. Charlotte Bronte, not Dickens, invented the child narrator who speaks intimately about pain. I was outside a cafe when a young woman approached. I told her I would watch her scooter. She came out and said, you don't have what I want. I said, what do you want? She said, one of those room temperature pizzas. I said, oh yes, pretending I knew how they tasted. I was sitting on a bench with coffee from a cheaper place down the street. The room temperature pizzas were made with puff pastry. The people who ate them were young and fit and spent their days working off the calories in pastel-colored clothes. The woman said, I need to pee, and they don't have a bathroom. I directed her across the street to the place where I peed. Her front teeth were prominent and sexy. I said, I'll watch your scooter. She said, really? I said, I'm sitting here anyway. While she was away, I thought about a man who had asked me to forgive him for three years. He had done something shitty to me, and one day, I just didn't care anymore. The next time he wrote to me, I said we could be friends, and then I didn't hear from him again. <laughs> when my sister learned she had lung cancer, we visited a surgeon who was gloomy and fat. He held up a model of lungs and tapped the plastic with a ballpoint pen, showing the place where he would cut into my sister's lung. He said, I may have to go in with my hands. His fingers were thick, and I wondered how they would fit inside my sister's chest. His father, too, had been a surgeon, and he wondered if this man had ever really had a choice. After we left his office, my sister and I returned to her house and sat outside on a curb with our legs crossed. Clouds skipped across the sky. Two cars slowly cruised by. She said, I know the cancer will recur, just not when or where. We could see ants marching in single file through tall spikes of grass. My sister had lost weight. She was wearing Chanel number no. 5, the perfume our mother wore. Usually my mother was afraid of dogs, but something in her rose up over fear when I got a small dog. His head was black and his body was white, 
When he was a baby, I carried him to see her in a canvas tote. He's so beautiful, she said over and over, petting him. I said, you're the dog's grandmother. She said, yeah, I'm the grandmother of a dog. And a softness came over her. Happiness has no history. The man I live with worries the cats we are minding will leave and not return, maybe because it is something he is capable of doing. One day, he read me a story by Lydia Davis. It was about a woman who is divorced, and she's remembering when a fish bone got caught in her then-husband's throat. Attempts to dislodge it with bread and water fail, and they go into the streets of Paris in search of help. They are directed to a hospital where a doctor extracts the bone with a tiny hook. The doctor, a Jew, and the husband, also a Jew, speak in French about being Jews. They said, well, this story is certainly suspenseful, but I have no idea what it's about. The man I live with said, irritation and connection. Irritation is at the center of everyone's story. Irritation that can neither be coughed up nor swallowed. Still, the narrator is recalling connection during a time of deprivation. That's the risk she takes in looking back at a happier time. He said, I would never have understood that story in a million years. He said, yes, you would have. I remember the loft on Bowery in First Street where Kate Millett lived with her husband, the sculptor, Fumio Yoshimura. There were splintery floors, a temperamental furnace, steak and baked potatoes every time, handwritten pages in a slanted script sprawled across a wooden table, books on every surface. Fumio's black and white kites strung from ceilings and tacked on walls. In Rosemary's Baby, John Cassavetes combines the solipsism of the New York actor with the ordinary inobservance of the coddled husband to produce a man who believably pimps his wife to the devil in order to get better acting parts. Roman Polanski's wit steers this film, perhaps because he knew he would have done the same thing as Rosemary's husband, perhaps because he also identified with the targeted and isolated Rosemary. Women write about men not loving them, not because men are important, but because failure in love is something we know about. Every spurned romance fuels the furnace of ambition. Yesterday, the man I live with came into the room where I was working and said, it's raining. We raced outside to watch fat drops plop on the pool and spring up a foot into the air. It has not, it has been months since it rained. Monsoon season was starting. Pink wind whipped around and the temperature fell 10 degrees. The fronds of the potted tree we call palmy were bending. We heard thunder too far away for lightning to appear. Tiny, spear-shaped leaves from the Palo Verde trees formed funnels across the water. It wasn't dark for long. As a child, my father was called Moisha. He was the middle son of the five boys who survived to adulthood. He played handball against brick walls and swam at the Y before leaving school in the ninth grade to sell dresses in New England. 
The father I knew was called Murray. He wore handmade suits and smelled good. At 74, he was diagnosed with cancer of the liver. I remember riding in the cab with him along the river and watching light bounce on little waves. I sat with him in the sun before he entered the hospital for the last time. I was there when he died, and I saw life rise off his body. He said yes to most questions asked of him. I did not feel he wanted sons. I used to ride the Greyhound bus from Phoenix to Flagstaff. The bus terminal was in a part of town where poor people gathered. The people were careworn and drug-addled, drunk and grimy from exposure, missing teeth and missing days. Maybe they had rolled here by mistake, traversing the continent from left to right or top to bottom, carrying pillows to rest against a window streaked with someone else's sweat. They drank beer from paper bags and ate hot dogs pink as the inside of a lip. They filled me in on the rules of the boss. He had sucked out everything but kindness. The man I live with says, people ordered kits to test their DNA as a form of armchair travel to the past. I can't drink a cup of tea without letting it get cold. After my sister regained her sense of taste, she set aside her memory of cancer. She said, I wasn't happy when you were born. You know, I told mom and dad, my heart hurts. And so then they took me to the doctor, and the doctor said, you're lying, right? I had coffee with a war correspondent who had fallen and broken her hip. She was walking with a cane and looked very happy. She said, running in a war, you hear explosions, and then you ask yourself, am I still alive? It is your only thought, and you see how unnecessary all the other thoughts are. For a while, you are drunk on adrenaline. When that wears off, you think you have transcended the parts of yourself that are burdensome. Then that stage passes too, and you see there are endless captivations, and you are never going to be free of them. One day in Washington Square Park, I came upon a troupe of acrobats performing on the paths. They were ragged and very beautiful in their feats of juggling and balance. They were indifferent to the rest of us onlookers who watched them with awe. The crowds kept expanding. You could see that the acrobats were having sex with each other, and then they were plunging into fits of jealousy. You could see why we wait until almost there is no air. In Flagstaff, I would stay at the house of a woman I had met at a party. She didn't go there much and liked people to use it. It was cooler in Flagstaff, and your emotions flowed back. Sometimes it rained. On walks, I would pass a house surrounded by balanced stones. Balancing stones was a thing there. I would visit a cafe famous for hikers with unwashed feet and the blazing eyes of the Unabomber. People would ask to share your table. You could sit for hours catching your breath or catching a falling knife. Mountains rose up around the town like the set for an opera. My sister says, keep me in your pocket when you walk. I say, okay. We're on her bed. We rise up and down like a body breathing. After she died, 
I attended the memorial for a woman I didn't know, and then I left with a packet of this woman's ashes in a small silver envelope and put, put it in my pocket. Sun-tanned men with lean muscles and glowing hair taught me to water ski at camp. I would sit on the edge of a crumbling pier, the smell of gasoline in the air and pearly puddles on the water. The rope would tighten and I would stand up, balancing slack against taut. The day the moon moved across the sun, a woman said to me, try my glasses and you'll be able to see it happen. I said, I think I'm afraid of them. I have never been prepared for the eclipse of anything. She said, they're totally black, and she placed them over my sunglasses. She said, look up. I saw what looked like a sliver of moon. It was tiny, like a cartoon moon, a banana that seemed very far away. I handed the glasses back to her, and she said, wasn't that fun? I said, yes. She was very excited. We were standing in front of the Bell Nord, where Isaac Bischevitz Singer had lived. Everyone in Manhattan was there with a dog, and the heads of the dogs were all turned in the same direction. In time, free food was offered, as it always is eventually on Broadway. I have to steady myself against the kitchen counter, remembering that my sister is dead. In the Museum of Natural History, there is a hall of Asian peoples, and a hall of African peoples, but no hall of white European peoples. The robots on a TV show I watch experience flashbacks that have been programmed to remember. My sister did not value her virginity or believe in God. She said, I don't want to leave anything unsaid. I wondered what she was thinking. She said, get in bed and lie next to me. Every so often, you need an accomplice. Thank you. Um, yeah, just I, I think so much of your writing, um, and uh, thanks for thanks for being here. Um, so my my question is kind of like a writing process question. I feel like you give so much in your writing, give so much to the reader. Does the quality of the prose and honesty, or whatever alternative difficulty honesty of what you're saying? go hand in hand, or can those two qualities uh, be adversarial in, in, in your process? Which, um, you mean being honest and yeah, being... Yeah, and writing well, so to speak. I have only two thoughts when I write. Yeah. One is, will they read sentence B after I've written sentence A, <laughs> and then C and D? That's it. That's all I care about is the sentence. And then the other thing I think about and care about is, did I make you feel something? And if I did, what did you feel? That's it. Those are the only two thoughts I have for the reader. There are succeeded around. And if you're interested in animal, it's on the table, and it's I could sell it to you for twelve dollars. So thanks so much for coming. Oh, definitely. Thank you. And thank everybody. Um, this is a. You know, it's, it's another enjoyable reading. I'm glad I'm doing this uh, for the uh, turnout and people look like that at a good time, so that's nice. Our next one will be June 15th. Uh, June 15th, it's usually the first Saturday of each month. I'm going to be in Oklahoma. Um, yeah, investigating Bob Dylan. So, um, yeah, so June 15th will be our next one, and uh, thanks. Uh, have a great day. Hopefully, the sun's still out. All right.
Cowboys vote.